everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol and I just want to thank you for tuning in to part two of our two-part series, The Loss of Our Biblical Worldview. Today we are going to talk about how the ancient Greek influence impacted the church. In part one, we talked about how it impacted society and today we're talking about the church. And full disclosure, this was not easy to prepare. Because when you go into history of any kind, but especially church history, it can be really difficult to communicate things in a very simplistic way without getting too cerebral, I mean. I like this stuff, but I don't know if everybody else does. And I know in today's time crunch world, most people want things, you know, we want them quick, right? We want boom, boom, boom. I'm sorry, but today is not that day. We have a lot to cover. And in order to grasp even just basic things that took place in this Greek culture to create such tremendous influence in the church, we're going to have to peel the onion back a bit. So to do that, I want to start by talking about the seven churches of Revelation for just a minute. We've been teaching on it. We're almost done. And as we teach on it, uh, we go deeper than the letters. We not only work through the letter, but we dig into the history of the city and the region, the condition of society, and the pressures that each church faced in light of where they lived. Well, out of the seven letters, there are two churches in particular that Jesus gives no criticism to. He only commends them. And he doesn't commend them for the things that maybe we think a church would be commended for. He doesn't commend them for wealth or social connections, nor how large or alive it appears to be. He doesn't commend them for order of service or how they dressed or even their prophets or apostles. Rather, he commended these two churches for something very important to him, faithfulness. And the words faith and faithfulness are the same words in the Hebrew and Greek, so they're interchangeable. We don't just need to have faith when we start out our journey once we believe in Jesus Christ, but we need to stay faithful along the way, to the very end, even if it's hard. It's not how we start our race, it's how we finish it. And things were hard for these churches. Not only were they under the rule and governance of the Roman Empire and commanded to call Caesar Lord when Jesus is their Lord, but they were set up against idolatry, powerful trade guilds, sexual immorality, a synagogue of Satan, persecution and martyrdom, to name just a few of the pressures. But something else was coming against the early house churches in those days, and not just those seven, but all house churches in the Roman Empire. They were up against false doctrines, doctrines of demons, as Paul puts it. And these doctrines were finding their way into the infant church. When Paul wrote to Timothy, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That's what was happening then, and it's still happening now. Deceiving spirits came into the churches, as did these doctrines of demons. And one of those doctrines in particular that appears to have done the most damage was what's called Gnosticism. 
Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. It brought in the thought that there is more to know, deeper things. It mixed pagan ideas, Greek philosophy, mysticism, and human reasoning with twisted explanations of scripture, bringing heretical new ideas into the early church. And not only that, they took root. And by the third century, they were fully absorbed. And that's only 250 years after Paul and the others started planning churches. That's a long time to have heretical doctrines around, don't you think? But the damage was done. There was a man named the Bishop Irenaeus and others who was a fierce opponent of the Gnostics. He lived during the second century, and he describes them as flourishing throughout the Roman Empire. That's how influential they were. Paul and John had already experienced them in the first century. Paul's letter to the Colossians, for example, addresses Gnostic beliefs in the letter by focusing the letter on the supremacy of Christ. John 2, his epistles addressed antichrist spirits, right? What were the Gnostics teaching to have Paul and John write the way they did? Well, Gnosticism's roots were solidly embedded in Greek philosophy, in particular the dualistic idealism of Plato, which I'll explain in a minute. For instance, the mind, the spiritual realm of the gods, and the intellect was considered good, beautiful, and true. But the material, physical world was evil, ugly, and without positive value. Think of the rungs of a ladder. Spiritual things are on the top rung, and physical things would be on the bottom rung. So with that mindset, the Gnostics, they taught that the flesh was sinful and bad. And because they viewed the flesh as a sinful substance, they denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And so John addressed that in his epistle in 1 John 4, chapter th- verse 3, when he said, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. The Gnostic teaching was painting a different picture of Jesus, a heretical picture. And people like Paul and Peter and John and others who came after them were fiercely coming against it. And so John in his letter exhorted the church to test the spirits because there was something deeper going on, something bigger, something that was altering the way people think and it was having a catastrophic effect on the church. Now, I closed out part one sharing statistics on something called syncretism. And let me just recap that for just a second. Syncretism is a mixture of different religions and cultures and schools of thought that form your beliefs. And in part one, I listed seven common beliefs today that people in America have embraced. Biblical theism, Marxism, secular humanism, nihilism, dualism, moralistic therapeutic deism, and new age. Mysticism is in that too. 
The study said that as of 2023, only 4% of adult Americans now have a biblical worldview, meaning the remaining 95 to 96% are embracing a mixture of beliefs, embracing a new term at the same time, world citizenship, even if they call themselves a Christian. All of these belief systems have had an impact on the church over the years. But there is one in particular we are going to look at a little deeper today. Dualism. It's a concept we need to grasp clearly so that we are able to identify it when it's in operation in the church or even ourselves. Dualism is a way of thinking that positions things into two opposing parts. It states that there are two fundamental principles to consider in life the material, physical world on one side, and the spiritual world or the realm of the gods on the other. And that may not seem like a big deal to you when you hear that, until you realize how deep that kind of thinking really goes. But before I get to that, let me give you some background in order to give some context. If you open your Bible, you see a clear distinction between where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, right? Usually there's a white sheet of paper or something to identify the partition. The Old Testament therefore ends with the prophet Malachi and the New Testament begins with the Gospel of Matthew, which means by 400 BC, the last word of the Old Testament was completed just before the Greeks arrived on the scene. And for the next 400 years, that space in your Bible between Malachi and Matthew, God was silent. God did not send a prophet and didn't speak. And no scripture was written during those 400 years except historical Jewish books included in what we call the Apocrypha. But other than that, for 400 years, God wasn't speaking. But others were. Greek philosophers were walking onto the world stage during this time, giving us their words, which included new thoughts, new ideas, and new ideals. Almost immediately after Malachi, we had Socrates, followed by his pupil Plato, and later followed by Aristotle, the tutor of Alexander the Great. These three men in particular gave us a whole new set of ideas philosophy, the way people think. They changed how people thought. Socrates is viewed by many as the founding figure of Western philosophy, even though he wrote nothing. He became best known, though, as a questioner of everything and everyone. His style of teaching is immortalized as the Socratic method, right? It wasn't about conveying knowledge, but rather asking question after clarifying question until his students arrived at their own understanding. And having wrote nothing himself, all that is known about him is filtered through the writings of a few contemporaries and followers, most notably his student, Plato. And when Socrates died after being on trial for being an atheist and corrupting the young, his death sentence was by suicide, where he had to drink hemlock. He taught his students that death was not to be feared because it meant his soul, which was part of the spiritual realm and was good, would be released from his physical body, which is part of the physical realm, which is bad. So he took the hemlock joyfully. 
Plato, on the other hand, wrote a lot. He is considered one of the most important figures of the ancient Greek world and the entire history of Western thought. In his written dialogues, he conveyed and expanded on the ideas and techniques of Socrates. And the academy that he founded in Athens is considered by some to be the world's first university. And in it, he trained his greatest student, the equally influential philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle, on the other hand, obviously enjoyed writing for he wrote 400 books. He made significant and lasting contributions to nearly every aspect of human knowledge, from logic to biology to ethics and aesthetics. He was so impressive that he was summoned by King Philip II to tutor his son, the future Alexander the Great. So this is what was taking place during that whole 400-year period of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Greek philosophy was being introduced to the ancient world and spreading like wildfire, creating an opportunity for Satan to make a move. You see, what Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle were teaching was a scale of values as it pertained to thinking, creating higher and lower planes of thinking. Think of that ladder I mentioned earlier. The top rung of the ladder would be spiritual things. The bottom rung of the ladder would be physical things. Mental and intellectual things would probably be on rung two. And whether we realize it or not, we use that scale still. It's a scale of valuing things that is based in dualistic thinking. Thinking that splits the physical realm and the spiritual realm, making them two opposing forces, which the Bible never does. Let me give you a couple of examples of how we might see this in Christianity. Take work, for instance. In your Bible, there is no such thing as sacred and secular jobs if you're a child of God. There are immoral jobs and there are illegal jobs, but we have separated careers out as sacred and secular. I'm in a secular job. She's in ministry, right? It's a concept of dualism that was being taught by Greek philosophers. Biblical thinking doesn't teach that. It teaches us that faith is integrated into every sphere of life, family, work, recreation, and church. We are to be the same person in private as we are in public. God isn't looking at your title or your connections. He's looking at your faithfulness. Do you have a willing heart to serve him in the sphere of influence where he placed you? Perhaps this is why Paul, when writing to the Colossians, reminded them in chapter 3, verse 23, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Whatever you do. It's a subtle reminder in the book of Colossians not to separate your work or lifestyle into something secular or sacred, which most likely the Gnostics were teaching people to do. Let's take one more example before moving forward. And this one's a bit more complicated. It's the separation of the body and the soul. When we think in a dualistic way, the way of the Greek philosophers, all sorts of things can follow. We can even divide a person up between body and soul. 
which is what the Greeks did and the church adopted. Greek philosophy taught that the soul of a person was good, but the body of a person was bad, corrupt, evil. People think body-soul division is a Christian thing, but it's a Greek thing. God does not separate it like that. He is always concerned with the wholeness of a person. That's what the Hebrew word shalom means. We think it just means peace, but it actually means peace, wholeness, soundness. Think of your mind, safety, that's your physical safety, well-being, that's your whole person, the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. It's a Greek idea that I have a soul that was put into a clay body, making them two separate things. My soul, being good to the Greeks, is now always striving to seek what's higher, some kind of union with God, so to speak, because my body that my soul is trapped in is bad. Can you get a bit of a picture? Did you ever wonder why people practice flagellation? That's when they would beat the human body with whips and rods and switches, right, to rid themselves of sin. The practice of flagellation within the bounds of the Catholic Church, for example, was considered an accepted form of penance. But it was never something the Bible taught. Genesis clearly states that God made man from the dust and breathed into him life. He became a living being, a living soul. A living soul in Hebrew thinking is a breathing body. So in Hebrew thinking, that means even animals are living souls. They have a breathing body. It's not something better from the body. It's what makes the body live. That's why if you're in danger, what if you're stranded on an island, right? And you write SOS in the sand, save our souls, right? You don't want a boat to come by and leave your wretched, evil, bad body on the beach and have your soul go separate because it's good, do you? You want the whole person saved. That's why they say S-O-S. In other words, keep my whole person alive. For the Greeks, prominence was placed on the soul, but especially the soul connecting to a spiritual dimension whether of consciousness or possibly some other eternal attribute. You can now understand a bit why temple priests of the Greco-Roman world would work themselves into a frenzied state during worship and why they would sacrifice their children for spiritual reasons or cut themselves to attain spiritual ecstasies or even at times castrate themselves in this state. The body was not important. The soul was. We can also better understand why God was angry with his people in the Old Testament when they adopted similar pagan ways, when they began to worship the Canaanite god Baal and his wife Asherah, why the priests on Mount Carmel, they were cutting themselves when they were facing off against Elijah, why they began to sacrifice their children to the god Molech. The demonic pagan thinking was there all along only now repackaged in philosophy, something that would come across more as enlightenment 
then deception. By the time Jesus came, philosophy had been established for a few hundred years. And when he came, he didn't think nor live the way of the Hellenized culture. First, he came in the physical and then proclaimed to be God. Talk about turning Greek philosophy and dualism on its head. Second, he came with a message completely contrary to the worldview of the day, such as telling people your thoughts, that what you thought in your mind could affect your body, such as if you're angry, it's like murder, or if you think lustfully, you're committing adultery, right? Then he went about healing people, spirit, soul, and body. So he comes in the physical, which the Greeks think is bad, and proclaims to be God, which the Greeks think would be good. But then he starts challenging the thinking of the mind, and now he goes after the people to heal the body, soul, and spirit. You can see why this just completely threw so many people off. He was casting out demons, raising dead people back to life, healing the sick, showing that he cared about the whole person. Shalom. He, after all, is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Shalom. And he began changing their thinking into kingdom thinking. His kingdom, which was not Greek nor Roman. Think of the demoniac. Once his body was delivered of demons, his mind could think straight and his spirit redeemed. It's the whole person. And when the people came to see what happened to him, they saw the man that had been possessed clothed and in his right mind. And it says they were frightened. It was more than just seeing this man having a demon cast out. They witnessed this man's spirit, soul, and body now in alignment, in perfect godly order. There was no dualistic thinking going on. And what about when Jesus died? Well, then he really delivered a blow, didn't he? His physical body that a Hellenized culture would think is bad is shredded and destroyed, right? He's then nailed to a cross and dies, but then comes back three days later with his soul intact, living within a new body, and then walked the earth showing them that the other way of thinking is a lie because he was showing them that he's after the whole person. He cares just as much about the body as he does the soul and the spirit all together. It's no wonder Jesus says at the end of Mark, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, cast out demons, lay hands on the sick, right? He wants those who follow him now to continue his mystery, his ministry. That's why he says, these signs will follow those who believe. The teaching of these three men, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, fathers of philosophy, spread right through Europe into Western culture. So much so, we are still studying their philosophies today, giving no thought to how dualistic thinking coming in through Greek philosophy is shaping us through our education education system. And that includes seminaries. Look no further than how the church views Israel, which I'll get to at the end. 
Many Christian thinkers, some of the fathers of our faith from the early days of their Christianity, borrowed heavily from Greek philosophical thought, shaping their approach to Christianity. Instead of living under the word, they often read scripture and interpreted scripture with Greek eyes. But when did this happen? When did God's people become Hellenized? Well, the story of Hanukkah is another story I like to teach on. I know that might sound a little weird, but because it's a wonderful reminder about keeping our temples holy ourselves, keeping ourselves clean, which is a nice reminder throughout the holidays, because that's what the story is about. Hanukkah means dedication. So it's about rededicating ourselves. But the story is found in the Apocrypha in the book of the Maccabees, a book written during those 400 years of silence when Greek philosophy was taking root. It's when Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes IV charged from Syria to invade Israel and capture the capital, Jerusalem. He was sold on Greek culture and wanted to impose it on every land he conquered. And he imposed this on Jerusalem too, on the Jewish people. For example, he forbid the people to honor the Sabbath. He restricted the Torah. He brought in sport, of course, in the nude. He took over the holy temple and erected a statue of Zeus in it, and even sacrificed pigs, an unclean animal to the Jews, on the altar. He brought in temple prostitutes and filled vestibules with profane priests. And for three and a half years, Jewish people were raped in every sense of the word. And this is when the Hellenization of Jews began, mostly by threat of death. They adopted Greek language and culture. And it was here in this story that the Greek and Hebrew worlds collided. So now Jews were being scattered around the known world and Jewish students and later Jewish scholars were coming to a university in Alexandria, Egypt, second in prominence to Plato's in Athens. And it became a melting pot of Jewish thinking and Greek thinking. And it was here that Jewish scholars decided to translate their scriptures into Greek so that the Greek world could hear the truth about the God of Israel. Seventy scholars faithfully translated the Old Testament into the Greek language in what's now known as the Septuagint. But the influence also went the other way. A new way of studying scriptures was introduced to the Jewish people, what's called an allegorical method, a method of assigning, quote, hidden meanings, end quote, to passages of scripture, limited only by an individual's imagination. So they no longer read the scriptures from a place of simplicity, but began to look for deeper truths. The allegorical method of reading the Bible assumes that the Bible has various levels of meaning. And so it tends to focus on the spiritual sense of scripture, also known as the mystical sense of scripture, as opposed to the literal sense. One example where we see this today is through something I'm sure you've heard of, Bible codes. The Bible in this approach is coded, full of secret messages, spiritual things. True or not, rather than reading scripture in its simplicity, it's a way now for people to look for something deeper. Now, there are some parts of scripture that are allegorical, clearly. But most of scripture you'll find is in plain, straightforward statements which need to be taken at face value. Because the danger is, 
If you're always looking for some hidden, figurative, or symbolic meaning, there's no boundaries. There's no control into what you'll find. Someone will say, well, I think it means this. And you'll say, well, I think it means that, which is what's called an eisegesis approach, interpreting the text by reading into it your own ideas based on your own biases, rather than what's called an exegesis approach, where you look at context and careful analysis of the text. But one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to discount the Holy Spirit in this either, because scripture is the living, breathing word of God. And he speaks, oftentimes pointing something out to us in scripture that maybe we just couldn't see before. He, after all, is our helper. And when the Holy Spirit reveals something to us in scripture, our spirit will bear witness with his, whether he is correcting us or confirming something for us. And I think that's a little different. Well, before long, Platonism took hold. Any philosophy that derived from Plato. A Hellenized Jew named Philo embraced the allegorical method. He was deeply influenced by Greek culture and became a student of Hellenic philosophy, especially Plato. And like Plato, he believed that a life of contemplation was superior. In fact, Philo was something of a mystic himself believing that a transcendent God could be known by intuition. He believed the purpose of existence was to strive to know God, that a supreme being had implanted in humans an innate love of him, allowing humans to achieve a personal union with the divine. And so Philo believed that reason and religion were not incompatible. In some of Philo's works, he used the concept of logos, or reason in a new way. Logos to Philo is the mediator between the human mind and the divine. One thing he taught was that intermediary beings were necessary to bridge this enormous gap between God who's spiritual and the material world that's physical. He believed in what's called a demiurge, a figure responsible for fashioning and maintaining the physical universe. Not God, but a go-between. And he called it Logos. He adopted dualism, this thinking that valued the spiritual over the physical. And so this is what was going on in Alexandria that would ultimately be passed on to Christian students and scholars, which would eventually impact the church. When Christ came, it was inevitable that a Christian faith, that as the Christian faith spread, there was going to be a head-on encounter with Greek thinking. Because if this is the kind of Greek thinking, this philosophy, this dualism that compartmentalizes physical and spiritual, one being higher than the other, what does this do with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Where do you put Jesus into your thinking? you can now see how Gnosticism came in. By the end of the first century and into the second, this thinking had made its way into the church. In Ephesus, for example, one of the biggest cities in Asia Minor at the time, people were beginning to force Jesus into a Greek framework, putting him somewhere in between, like the Greek demiurge, this go-between between God and creation. 
Jehovah's Witnesses do this. The Gnostics believed in a demiurge, a go-between for the physical and spiritual world, which is why their doctrine was so dangerous for the church. They were also avid proponents of progressive revelation, another dangerous doctrine that took hold in the church. It was the belief that God is continuing to reveal his will to mankind, but the, with the implication that the Holy Scriptures are not as important as hearing directly from the spirit world yourself, hearing from God yourself. In other words, it brought in the mystical element of Gnosticism. And this was the same type of thing Philo embraced. And this is what Paul and John and Polycarp and Irenaeus and Tertullian and many others were fiercely taking a stand against. I'm so grateful they were strong leaders for the early church, which was clearly finding itself under assault from great deception. And I'm afraid that's where we are today, too. In desperate need for strong leaders like them in the church today to protect the flock from the deceptions all around us and within. Which makes me think maybe right now is a good time to mention something. This mystical approach to hearing directly from God. Although it's cloaked in some biblical undertones, it's not biblical. In fact, it's dangerous if we're not careful. This mysticism within the church. It's a mixture of Eastern mysticism, Greek philosophy, dualism, and Christian teachings. And right now there's a popular, popular movement in the church of Christian mysticism. Now that word mysticism comes from the Greek word mystes, which means initiate, an initiate into a mystery, referring to an initiate of a secret cult or mystery religion. That's, that's the definition. Mysticism itself is defined as this, the practice of religious ecstasies, which religious spirit, which are religious experiences during alternate states of consciousness, those ecstasies. But it's the practice of religious ecstasies together with whatever ideologies, ethics, rites, myths, legends, and magic may be related to them. Most mystics are in pursuit of a personal communion or special union with God, whichever God they consider that to be. And so a person who successfully pursues and gains such communion, then earns the title of a mystic. You don't need to go to Thailand or Tibet to practice mysticism in the West. It's found today in universalism, transcendentalism, theosophy, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, and unfortunately now, Christ Church. It's hard to believe for me how many Christians have embraced this truly. But the reality is it's all around us, in the Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant churches, with the genuine goal, I believe, of finding union with God. And to do that, there are practices incorporated into our lives, such as solitude and contemplation and self-denial and often silence, which all aim at the emptying of the self in order that we might be filled with God. And it sounds innocent enough. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? Some of those practices even help. And so Christians, though, they don't see anything wrong with practicing Christian mysticism as they feel it draws them closer to God 
and to their community, and sometimes that is true. However, we must use great discernment because not all that glitters is gold. You won't hear words typically spoken in Christian circles as you would in New Age mysticism like transcendence or initiate or spiritual ecstasies or states of consciousness. Rather, in the Christian world, it's packaged quite nicely with modern language, giving it a sacred feel with words like contemplative, encounter, spiritual, mystery, graces, that's a big one, embodiment, conscious awareness, felt experiences, and I could go on and on. When yet, Scripture says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. You are already one with Christ. That word joined is like cement. You can't be separated. So if you've already joined to him, what are these people really looking for within the church? The danger in this movement becomes about an experience and less about relationship. And it can also quickly become about works over abiding. And it can quickly become about self rather than Jesus, stealing glory only meant for him. It moves beyond the scriptures, moves beyond the Holy Spirit into deeper things, deeper truths, they say. One gal said to me, but Carol, it's about the deeper things. Jezebel said that to the church in Thyatira too, in the letters of Jesus. Friends, you don't need to go searching for something deeper. It's already within you. Don't you know that? John makes this point in 1 John chapter 2, 26 to 27, when he says, I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Christ, him, the anointing you have received from him, he's talking about Christ. You do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, like so many of the doctrines that they were facing, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. John is telling them this anointing, the anointing of Christ is within you. Christ is Christos in the Greek. Messiah is Mashiach in the Hebrew. Both of them mean anointed one. They mean the same thing. Christ and Messiah are the same thing, and it means anointed one. Paul is telling the people of his day who are facing these false doctrines that are mixed with mysticism, you have him in you already. What are you striving for? Whether it's embracing the desert fathers or the spiritual sayings of monks and mystics within the early church written centuries ago, male and female, or books available today written by people who were practicing mystics three decades ago and now today identify as spiritual leaders within the church, friends, we need to exercise great caution. The Holy Spirit speaks to us all. He is the spirit of truth. In John chapter 16, it says that, says that it is the Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. 
And then Jesus says, he will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. You don't need to go on some mystic search for that. You just simply have to ask. You don't need to go into an altered state of consciousness to hear God or to be in a constant state of contemplation to hear him or to be in union with him. If you have been truly born again by the spirit, you are joined with Jesus and now one spirit with him. Christian mysticism, I fear, is going to be one of the great deceptions of our day because it is already here in our pulpits, in books, in retreats, in Bible studies, TED Talks, you name it, it's everywhere. With one spiritual director from a denomination I will not mention saying this, until someone has had some level of mystical inner spiritual experience, there is no point in asking them to follow in any life-changing way the ethical ideas of Jesus, or the mystery of Christian doctrines like the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, salvation, or incarnation. We simply don't have the power to really understand or follow any of Jesus' ideals, such as loving others, forgiving enemies, nonviolence, or the humble use of power, except in and through a mystical union with God. He goes on to say that mysticism teaches us how to find God, And a mystic is someone who has been recognized as doing this particularly well. I am about to throw up. That is so not true. Where is the Holy Spirit in any of it? Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. John wrote his gospel at the end of the first century, which was around 8590 AD, scholars agree, while living in Ephesus of all places, right before he was exiled to Patmos, well aware of the heresies coming at the church. In fact, going all the way to Rome at one point to address them, saying, saying at one point in his first epistle, Even now, many antichrists have come. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went that they might be made manifest that none of them were with us. The people causing so much disturbance within the church, John's saying, came from within the church. And they're leaving was going to prove that they were never true Christians to believe to begin with. Which is why he opens his gospel the way he does. His gospel was written the same time around the end of the first century. And he opens up his gospel identifying Jesus as the word, the logos. He's essentially telling the ancient world, this logos, Jesus, he's the reason. He is the true logos. He's not a demiurge. He's not a go-between. He's God. The Logos was in the beginning with God, and the Logos was God. There is no intermediary mumbo-jumbo talk here that Philo speaks of. John took the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and drove it right into the lie. Notice, therefore, how his gospel and his epistles They always bring special attention to the divinity of Christ for this very reason. 
In the second and third centuries, Alexandria was the melting pot of three distinct cultural streams, the Jewish Alexandrian philosophy, Platonism, and Gnosticism. And from this university came Christian scholars, two in particular, Clement and Oregon. Clement of Alexandria, not to be confused with Clement of Rome. Clement and Oregon relied upon the extensive knowledge that was preserved in the Library of Alexandria in order to read the Bible allegorically. Now, if you're asking, what does she mean by reading the Bible allegorically? It might look something like this. John 21, verse 11, okay? In John 21, it's after the resurrection and the disciples are fishing and they had toiled all night and caught nothing, right? And they see the man on the seashore, but they don't recognize that it's Jesus at first. Then he calls to them and he tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. And when they did, they brought in a large number of fish. And Jesus asked Peter to bring him some fish. So Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore and it was full of large fish. And then it says 153 of them. Now, the allegorical method of interpreting this passage is going to try to turn these 153 fish into something spiritual, into something symbolic. I can't tell you how many interpretations I've heard of this verse and even believed sometimes it was that convincing. There have been dozens of allegorical interpretations of what 153 means here. Maybe it's just a lot of fish. Maybe they counted them in order to see how much money it would yield. But this is an example of how we are trying to find the deeper things. Maybe there are deeper things here. We don't know. Scripture is not clear about it. And so we just need to be careful. Clement and Oregon called themselves Christians. Platonist Christians. What in the world? Clement considered Christianity as the highest form of philosophy. He was widely read in history and philosophy and poetry, both pagan and Jewish. And so allegorical reading of biblical text helped him to connect all these forms of human wisdom to divine wisdom. And so for him, Holy Scriptures was a roadmap for the connection. Oregon was one of the greatest biblical scholars of ancient Christianity, known for his attention to the text of the Bible and his work, Christian Neoplatism. What a paradox with all these words, right? He deepened his secular philosophy to help him elaborate his theology. But he was eventually removed from teaching and the priesthood for heretical ideas. The simplicity of the scriptures and the simplicity of Christ was being corrupted. And that corruption was oozing its way into churches all throughout the Roman Empire. Because now we move north to Tunisia, to Hippo. A young man was sent there to be bishop, Augustine. Augustine was brought up in Italy, given a classical education in Neoplatonism, teachings of Plato. But like most products of that culture, his body and soul went different ways. His soul studied philosophy and his body became promiscuous. And he had a mistress and an illegitimate son whom he later abandoned. But keep in mind, they didn't believe what you did with your body affected your soul. But that was his life at one point. He even joined a sect called the Manichaeans, which were Gnostic dualists. 
Now with this background, he became convicted of sin. And he had contact with a saintly bishop called Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. And if you've read the Confessions of Augustine, you know that he was converted quite dramatically and sat under the ministry of this bishop and then chosen to become Bishop of Hippo. So he went there. Now, after his conversion to Christianity and his baptism in 387, Augustine developed his own approach to philosophy and theology, accommodating a variety of methods and different perspectives. At first, he preached a simple gospel, but he was also greatly influenced by Stoicism, Platonism, and Neoplatonism. And being greatly influenced by the Greek philosophers, he brought these philosophical ideas into the Roman church, and those concepts became dominant, rather than the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles. His writings inform every area of discussion in Christian philosophy, systematic theology, philosophy of history, polemics, rhetoric, and devotion. And he is highly esteemed in all streams of Christianity, Catholic and Protestant both. As it's said of him, the monk Gotts Chalk stated 1,200 years ago what is still true today. Augustine is, after the apostles, the teacher of the entire church. But even with all of his contributions, we can't leave out the fact that he too found Platonism attractive. He deemed Greek philosophy and faith compatible because they both seek truth. And so he modified Platonism to accommodate Christian doctrine, attempting to synthesize Greek thought with Christianity, arguing that Christianity came to complete Greek philosophy, not destroy it. And this is not my opinion. This is history I'm taking you through, and I encourage you to look it up yourself. But what he did do is he framed the concepts of original sin and a just war. And he believed the grace of God was indispensable to us as he was forgiven of so much. And his written work, The City of God, was one of the most influential books of the Middle Ages and very eye-opening. When the Western Roman Empire was starting to disintegrate, Augustine developed the concept of the Catholic Church as a spiritual city of God in a book of the same name, distinct from the material, earthly city. And his thoughts profoundly influenced the medieval worldview. And although he appears to put a sword to the pagan hedonistic society of Rome, his dualistic neoplatonic perspective is obvious. I'm not trying to speak unfairly about anyone, just painting a picture of what was really going on. Educated in the classical, classic Greek tradition, but living amidst the emerging Christendom, Augustine inhabited two worlds. And consequently, his writings demonstrate an effort to combine the ideas of these two worlds. And so by mixing faith and philosophy, specifically Platonism, Augustine produced a sophisticated interpretation of Christianity. And he influenced the work of Thomas Aquinas. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. The origin of John Calvin's theology is within Augustine's theology known as Augustinian Calvinism. And so many early Christian thinkers, like St. Justin Martyr, 
Clement of Alexander, St. Augustine. They viewed Christian faith as more the completion of Greek philosophy. Either way, what you discover when studying church fathers, which I encourage you all to do, and try to find unbiased records, is recognize how Greek thinking played a huge part in their faith. And with the exception of a handful of other church fathers, the church has been pulling up its Hebraic roots ever since. I'll give you two examples of this as I begin to draw to a close. For nearly 300 years, Christianity was considered an illegal sect within the Roman Empire, until 313 when Roman Emperor Constantine became instrumental in legalizing Christianity. A proclamation known as the Edict of Milan protected full rights for Christians within the empire, restoring their property, releasing them from prisons, and effectively banning government persecution of their faith. It also declared a general state of religious tolerance, allowing for the expression of virtually any spiritual belief. And although this appeared as a wonderful step for Christianity, it came with a whole, a whole new set of rules, mostly man-made rules, traditions of men. And to be fair, they were trying to provide some structure. But creeds were written to establish boundaries around the new Roman church. Rules for all sorts of things, and you can look up creeds. But there are rules for clergy. There's rules on where deacons can sit when in the presence of a priest. There's rules for forbidding feasting with heathens and forbidding clergy to practice magic or women from entering into the altar. There's rules forbidding celebrating marriages and birthday feasts during Lent, forbidding receiving unleavened bread from Jews, forbidding singing uninspired hymns in the church, and reading uncanonical books, so the Apocrypha, and countless others. But it also put new restraints on how Christians were living out their faith up until this point. It forbid Christians from observing the Jewish Sabbath, moving the Lord's Day to Sunday instead, a day that is named after the sun god. Where Jews counted Sunday as the first day of the week, after their Sabbath on day seven, Jews would count the days of the week in numbers, one, two, three, day two, day three, day four, right until you got to day seven, the Sabbath. But the West had to forgo their observance of the lunar calendar and embrace the Roman Gregorian one, which was set up a little different. So now Sunday, now the days of the weeks, had the Roman names to them. Sunday was the day of the sun. Monday is the day of the moon. Tuesday is Tyre's Day, the Norse god of combat. Wednesday is Odin or Woden, the father of gods. In Latin, that's Mercury. Thursday is Thor's Day. In Latin, that's Jupiter. Friday is the Norse goddess Fridge. In Latin, that's Venus. And Saturday is the day of the sun, is the day of Saturn. And the months changed as well. The Jews could no longer adopt to their Hebraic months, which are all listed in your Bible, by the way. Instead, they had to adopt the Roman ones. January is now the name is the name for the Roman goddess Janus, the protector of gates and doorways. February is from the Latin word Februa, which means to cleanse. The Roman calendar, the month of February, was a festival of purification and atonement that took place. In March, it's named for the Roman god of war, Mars. April is from the Latin word apiero, to open, to bud, because plants begin to grow in this month, and so it's spring's renewal. 
In May, it is named for the Roman goddess Maia, who oversaw the growth of plants, an earth goddess. June is the name for the Roman goddess Juno, the patroness of marriage and the well-being of women. July is named to honor Roman dictator Julius Caesar. August is named to honor the first Roman emperor Augustus Caesar. September, October, November, December are all named after numbers, 9, 10, 11, 12. So much was changing for the early church, even Passover. It was decided that no longer could they celebrate Passover, but Easter. Passover was calculated by the Jews based on the cycles of the moon, as it is in Scripture. But the Council of Nicaea changed all of that, establishing Easter instead, which was which would always be held on a Sunday, no longer giving in a link to the moon or to the biblical timing of events, even though Jesus' death and resurrection lines up with that. Even the word Easter itself comes from paganism, a goddess of fertility, which is why we have bunnies and eggs, signs of fertility. So we replaced the Passover lamb with an Easter ham for Easter Sunday and adopted a new tradition, Paganism, friends, was still present in the Roman Empire, even after Constantine. He may have appointed a group of converted Christians to high positions in many parts of his empire, but he also extended many benefits to pagan priests who became Christian ministers. Although he destroyed many temples, not all, he never outright banned pagan rituals like sacrifices. After his official conversion to Christianity in 312, Constantine built his triumphal arch arc in Rome. It is, it is interesting, though, that it wasn't dedicated to the symbols of Christianity, but to the unconquered sun, S-U-N. And in 330, Constantine set up a statue where he appeared as a statue of the sun god in the forum. The column was decorated with pagan symbolism supported by some Christian decoration. The statue on the top of the monument presented Constantine in the likeness of Apollo with a sun crown, a symbol of the kings from the times of Alexander the Great. Even the money still had the image of pagan gods. But that wasn't the only thing that was impacting the church. Over the centuries, the prophetic scriptures concerning physical Israel and its physical people, the Jews, became a stumbling block. Remember when Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed, leaving no stone left standing? Well, that came true in AD 70, around 30 to 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, depending on when you think he died, when Roman general Titus, before he was the emperor, stormed Jerusalem, just as predicted, causing the death of millions. Something we know from the historian Josephus, who lost both his parents and his wife in the event. Not only that, it resulted in the enslavement of tens of thousands of Jewish people, many of whom, you may not know this, were sent to Rome and used to help build the Colosseum, which, by the way, was built by the wealth obtained from the looted Jewish temple treasures. Many Jewish followers of Jesus by this time, they had already escaped to live in other areas, such as Asia Minor. Little did they know then, they would never be able to return home. Some 60 years later, any remaining Jews that were in the land, which weren't many, were either persecuted or again sold into slavery after the failed Bar Kokhba revolt, a revolt that resulted in the final banishment of all Jews from the land of Israel. So then, 
for the next 2,000 years, the land of Israel fell into the control of the Gentile world. You had the Greeks first, right? And then Rome, R- Roman rule took over from the Greeks in 63 BC until 313 AD. Then followed by Byzantine rule from 313 to 636. Then came Islamic rule from 636 to 1099. Islam didn't start until the 7th century, by the way. I'm not sure if you know that. Crusader rule. 1099 to 1291, Mamluk rule, 1291 to 1517, Ottoman rule, 1517 to 1917, and then British rule, 1917 to 1948. All these empires trampled through the Holy Land of Israel for 2,000 years. Keep that in mind when or if you ever visit the Holy Land. All the bloody wars that took place there for thousands of years. But then what happened? Why did British rule end in 1948? The Balfour Declaration. It was a public statement issued by the British government in 1917 during World War I, announcing its support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in a land now called Palestine, which was then an Ottoman region with a small minority Jewish population. Keep in mind, we're on the heels of the Holocaust here. These people had no place to go, and the world was shocked at what happened to the Jewish population. Well, in 1947, the United Nations voted to divide the land called Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. But if you know your Bible history, then you know this is clearly not the boundaries that God gave to Abraham and his descendants, but it was a start. In biblical prophecy, there is clear language about the restoration of not only the land of Israel, but the return of God's people to that land, never to be exiled from it again. And it was being fulfilled before our very eyes. The Jews accepted the United Nations partition, and Harry S. Truman took office. When he took office, he made clear that his sympathies were with the Jewish people and accepted the Balfour Declaration. But at the time, no Arab or any other Muslim country accepted it. When British rule ended on May 15, 1948, Israel was reborn, and God's prophetic clock began to tick. But with ink barely dry, so to speak, the armies of all the neighboring Arab states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and and Egypt, attacked the one-day-old state of Israel in order to destroy it. It's called the Israel War of Independence. But to the world's surprise, the little Jewish state survived. Coming out of the shadows of the Holocaust, using limited resources to defend themselves, their victory can only be explained as God's sovereign hand over them. But then it happened again. In 1967, what is known as the Six-Day War, The dictator of Egypt announced his plan in his words to destroy Israel. He placed Egyptian troops on Israel's border and armies of surrounding Arab countries were also mobilized to attack. However, Israel preemptively attacked Egypt and Syria. Israel did not attack Jordan and begged Jordan's king not to join the war, but he did. And only because of that did Israel take control of Jordanian land specifically the west bank of the Jordan River and all of Jerusalem, including governmental control of the Temple Mount. 
Today, the Islamic wave governs what happens inside the compound, meaning they have religious control of the Temple Mount, while Israeli forces control external security. So they have governmental control. That's why when there is any sort of unrest on the Temple Mount today, you'll see Israeli forces at work, not Muslim. That's also why when you go to Israel today, you see Israeli forces patrolling that area. Or if you go to Israel today and go to the Temple Mount, you'll notice there's special religious rules you have to follow before stepping foot onto that compound because it's run by the Muslims. Shortly after the war, the Arab states went to Khartoum, Sudan and announced their famous three no's. No recognition, no peace, and no negotiations. What was Israel supposed to do? Well, one thing Israel did do, a little more than a decade later in 1978, they gave the entire Sinai Peninsula, an area of land bigger than Israel itself and with oil, back to Egypt, because Egypt, under new leadership, signed a peace agreement with Israel. So Israel gave land for the promise of peace with Egypt. And it has always been willing to do the same thing with the Palestinians, just as they tried to do in 2000. When Israel agreed to give the Palestinians a sovereign state in more than 95% of the West Bank and all of Gaza. But the Palestinian leadership at the time rejected the offer and instead responded by sending waves of suicide terrorists into the land. And it's been a roller coaster of relations between the two ever since. You see, when Israel came back into the land in 1948, most people from theologians, to politicians, had written them off. A people who were not in their land for 2,000 years returned, and not just returned, but restored their heritage, their language, their religion, their culture, their food, their feasts. After being scattered to different lands for centuries, somehow the Jewish people maintained their identity having been separated from each other, absorbed into other cultures, almost wiped out by the Holocaust, and yet found themselves being restored to their land, to their heritage, all intact. It's a true fulfillment, literal fulfillment of biblical prophecy, largely overlooked in the Western church. Why? Well, for 2,000 years, biblical prophecy could not be reconciled concerning Israel or God's people. There was no more Israel after A.D. 70, right? There was no Israel in the early centuries of the church until 1948. And in that time, Greek philosophy and dualism swept through the church, separating things from spiritual to physical and creating the doctrine of replacement theology all the more believable. In the work, in In the words, in other words, the church was teaching that they replaced Israel. After all, though, how could you explain literal prophetic fulfillment of scriptures concerning physical Israel when the land was known as Palestine now and God's people were no longer there? And so a distinction between spiritual and physical Israel began to be taught in the church, and it became one of the many new ideals that shaped the way Christians thought and read and interpreted prophetic scripture, including the book of Revelation. I'll break this down very simply, and then we're finished. 
there were a few ways people looked at this. One group of Bible interpreters say all the promises were conditional on Israel. They were conditional on Israel being faithful and obedient to God. And so since they weren't, all these predictions have been canceled. They will never happen because of their unfaithfulness. However, if Israel had been faithful, if they would have cooperated, those promises would have been fulfilled. In particular, since the Jews did not accept Jesus as their Messiah, they believe the Jews have now forfeited their entire future. That's one reason why some preachers never talk about Israel or its future. The second approach is this, that the promises were unconditional. It's not a case of they will happen if, but that they will happen. God has said, this is what I intend to do and I will do it. But within this group, there are two totally different ways of saying how that will happen. And one of the main ways churches say the prophetic scriptures are to be fulfilled is to say, this is already happening to the church and that these predictions are already being fulfilled in a symbolic or spiritual way in the church. And this is the view called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. And therefore, all the predictions made to Israel are now to be fulfilled in the church and are being fulfilled in the present, but in a spiritual way, not in a physical or literal way. Do you see the dualism? They teach that we are brought to the heavenly Jerusalem, not an earthly one, and that the promises of God spoken, to, spoken in those scriptures are for the church now. In other words, all the predictions of blessings are now passed on to the church. But interestingly enough, all the predictions of curses are quietly discarded. This is the majority view in many churches today, that the church has replaced Israel, that he's finished with them. And so we have to evangelize Israel now like we have to evangelize any other nation, only we don't. Most Christians are afraid to talk to a Jewish person. We're taught that the Jews don't have any future as a people except when they teach that God deals with them in Revelation, right? Or if a Jew gets converted, then they have a future with us. And so because of this belief, there is a habit of calling the church the new Israel, the spiritual Israel. And yet, even though the name Israel occurs 74 times in the New Testament, not once is it clearly applied to the church. In 73 of those, it is clearly applied to the Jewish people. There is only one verse that could be a little ambiguous, but that's not enough to apply Israel to the church. So that's the second view, that these predictions made to Israel are now be, being fulfilled in the present in the church in a spiritual way, and therefore are fulfilled by Christ's first coming. And the third and last view, and the view I've taken, is that these predictions were unconditional, they will happen, but they will happen literally and physically to Israel and to its people, as God said they would. Therefore, most of them are still future. But do you see, even in the church, coming in through seminaries, we are teaching a dualistic thinking pertaining to Israel. God gave Abraham a covenant and promised him two physical things, physical descendants, a people, that we are part of, by the way, being grafted in Romans 11 and also Galatians 3. And second, land, a place for those people to live. 
And God has never revoked his promises. In fact, he says in the New Testament that those gifts are irrevocable. They're still physical. The land is still a physical land and still belongs to the Jewish people. The Jews are still a physical people. And they are still the brothers of Jesus. And they are still beloved by God for the patriarch's sake. The physical manifestation of these prophecies towards Israel and the Jewish people are taking place, being fulfilled before our very eyes, and many are missing it. Yes, many Jews are still not saved. They do not believe in their Messiah yet, but many do. But even the ones that don't know him yet, they are beloved. They are his chosen people. And when you go to the land with this understanding, he opens your eyes to see his work in the midst of the years. He is making his work known to the world if you choose to see it. So these are the three positions. And you will have to work your way through the Bible and come to your own conviction about these. But one of the most decisive factors for me comes from visiting the land itself and the visible evidence of the fulfillment of those scriptures, but also from the book of Romans, chapter 9 through 11, which focus on Israel's past, present, and future, especially God's promises in Romans 11 and his subsequent warning to the church not to assume they've replaced them in his plan of redemption. God is after unity, friends, internal unity within his church, Greek philosophy, dualism, Gnosticism, even mysticism, compartmentalize not only the Lord, but the whole order of his kingdom. By separating the spiritual from the physical, we have separated sacred from secular, body from soul, mind from matter, natural from supernatural, eternal from temporal, even creature from creator. When we place Satan on the same plane plane of spiritual power as God, our God is not like the Greek or Roman gods, or even the Egyptian gods. He is not distant, silent, or static. Our God is dynamic. He works with human beings. He shares with us, speaks to us, and has prepared a place for us. He is the Hebrew God who hears our prayers, dispenses mercy, becomes our fortress and eternal king, working in us that internal unity of all things. So while we have breath in our lungs, let's choose today what we will believe and how we will serve him. The letters to the churches of Revelation were not just for the churches of the first century. They're for us today as well, as those doctrines of demons still plague the church today. May we sit up and pay attention to his messages to his churches and do as he says when he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope this blessed you today. Take care.